between January 1979 and May 1979, what happened was unimaginable massacre. Police was let on the island, women were raped, kids were killed, thrown into the river, men were shot at point-blank range and they were, pressure was put on them to leave the island, to go back to Dandakarana. There was pressure from the left-front government on the media owners to stop reporting on Mori Chapi. Though it, you know, if you have to realize it's 1979, there was no social media, media also was very limited. But it still baffles me how something that was so close to Kolkata could go on like this for a period of so many months without civil society rising in anger. It baffles me. The perpetrators of the violence made sure that this remains a lapse in memory, that you and I don't get to know about it, that it's not written about, it's not spoken about. It's, it's, even if some books come out, they are sort of quickly taken off shelves. If somebody wants to talk about it in, in, in a lecture circuit, somebody from the audience shuts him down. But it's very important that we remember such massacres and we sort of recount what happened and why. As nations grapple with refugee crisis, Mori Chapi should be retrieved from the dustbin of history. I have, uh, I work with India today. I've just written a book called Blood Island. It's on an incident that happened almost uh, 40 years ago. But you know, even now, as we look at the news, uh, the relevance of this incident, uh, the inc this incident is relevant. Why do I say this? Because one of the hot topics in news um, in the recent past, in fact, for the past two, three days, has been the intolerance debate. Uh, 49 uh, eminent citizens have written to the Prime Minister saying that uh, there is intolerance in the, in the country, there are lynchings uh, in the name of Ram and uh, whether Jai Ram has become a war cry. And uh, I believe, I firmly believe that uh, killings, lynchings, any killings, whether in the name of Ram, Rahim, Mao Zedong, should be so condemned and it should not, hap should not happen. But uh, what happens when there is no debate? What happens when we are not told that something very gruesome has taken place? What happens when the perpetrators of that kind of uh, massacre are themselves the agenda setters? Uh, what happens when they are the history writers? What happens when they are the talk circuit crowd? What happens when you and I don't get to know about this? My book, Blood Island, An Oral History of the Morijapi Massacre, is about one such event. Like I said, it happened 40 years ago in an island in Sundarbans, which is around 75 kilometers east of Kolkata. It's a, it's a very interesting island. It's an archipelago. It's, it's, there's, for, there's forest, there's land, there's rivers meeting sea. It's, it's a cluster of 104 islands, of which roughly around 54 islands have human habitation. In one of those islands called Morijapi, around five to ten thousand people, people, if you believe the survivors of the massacre, were, were, were butchered. The official figures say that less than ten people were killed. So why this vast difference? This vast difference is because, like I said, the perpetrators of the violence made sure that this remains a lapse in memory, that you and I don't get to know about it, that it's not written about, it's not spoken about, it's, it's, even if some books come out, they are sort of quickly taken off shelves. 
if somebody wants to talk about it in, in, in a lecture circuit, somebody from the audience shuts him down. But it's very important that we remember such massacres and we sort of recount what happened and why. So let me go back to the beginning. Around uh, when, when India was India became free, India became an independent country. It also saw partition, which till today remains a huge scar. Uh, millions of Hindus moved from moved from what is now Pakistan to India, and vice versa. Millions of Muslims moved the other way. In what was then East Pakistan, the first flux of refugees that came in to Bengal were mostly the upper caste Hindus. The lower caste Hindus, whom we roughly call Dalits, they stayed back. They stayed back because they were very attached to the land and to the rivers. They were into fishing and they were into farming. And they thought that they were victims of, the, of caste, uh, caste discrimination by the upper caste Hindus, as were their fellow Muslims, who because of their religion were also kept apart from the mainstream. So they thought that we don't really need to fear the, uh, the Muslims in this new land. They are our brothers because they were fellow tillers, they were fellow fishermen. So we don't need to move with the upper caste Hindus. This is our land, we will stay here. But the experience turned out to be anything but welcoming. Riots continued and through the 40s, late 40s, the 50s, the 60s, you know, waves of refugees started coming to Bengal, huge waves. Mostly, as I said, the lower caste, lower caste Hindu refugees. Now, it was very difficult for the Bengal, West Bengal government at that time to absorb all of them. So they wrote to the center saying, what do we do with so many people? We don't have the resources to absorb them. So the center said, look, look there's a space called the Dandakarand uh, Development Authority. The Danda, the, the, there's, an, there's an authority called the Dandakarand Development Authority. And there's a space in what is modern day Chhattisgarh, Madhya Pradesh, cutting into Maharashtra, a bit of Orissa where the, these, there, there, are, there are these temporary refugee camps and those refugees can be sent here and they can be made to work. They can be made to till the land, they can be made to work for the for construction of roads. So you send them here. So while these people were coming, it was a Congress government in Bengal at that time. The left, the CPIM most prominently, they said that this is a very wrong thing that's happening. These are our brothers and sisters. They have come from Bangladesh and they should be absorbed within West Bengal and they promised this refugees you know if a day comes when we will we come to power we will make sure that you are brought back from Nandakaran and you are rehabilitated in West Bengal. The refugees still to till today uh, the people who survived they remember those promises even Jyoti Basu who later became the chief minister of West Bengal he reportedly addressed uh, you know refugee gatherings and said look I promise you you would be brought back to West Bengal. Now, time passed. These refugees were sent to the Andakaran. They tried to adapt to the new land, uh, new people. It was difficult. Most, for, most of them, it was a new language. It, the climatic conditions were not favorable. And they dreamed, dreamt of going back to Bengal, settling there somewhere. Finally, 1977, the left come, came to power in Bengal. And they sent a memorandum to the left hand government in Bengal saying that you know you promised we would be brought back. So please, this is the time, we have been waiting, we have saved up some money, we want to come back to West Bengal. There was no answer. They waited, they waited. 
finally they located an island in the sundarbans which with, where there was no habitation and they decided this is a place where they can go and settle down and and make it home so waves of refugees came to from all over the undercurrent they came to bengal and they were stopped at the railway station and they were forced back into trains most of them that no you have to go back to where you came from but some of them slipped through and they after a very arduous trek it's a very difficult terrain to go even now if you want to go to this particular island from kolkata you'll find it very difficult if you don't know the way finally they reached uh, this island morichappi and over a period of 6 to 8 months amazingly they transformed this island they uh, sort of made roads they built huts they had a school they had a medical center there was a well there was a boat manufacturing unit they started farming they started fishing and they said that you know we would sort of uh, the fish we catch we are going to go and sell it at lower price in the adjoining markets and that's how we are going to sustain ourselves they started a boat manufacturing unit they would build boats you need small boats to travel in 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 sundarbans from one island to the other the west bengal government was alarmed they said oh this is not what's supposed to be so they said look this is this can't be you have to go back to the undercurrent these guys were adamant they said no we are not going what they did was they sent a few delegations to talk to them and when they were sent back saying no nothing 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 doing we are not going back this they start started a economic blockade now i've gone to this place this island between there's there's an island called kumirmari and in morichappi itself there was a problem that you had no drinking water so they would take this small boats and go to kumirmari with pots fill them up with drinking water come back river water was saline so they had to go to kumirmari to get water so police launches surrounded this island and there was a blockade for around 15 days where these boats this islanders could not take the boats to go to kumirmari 15 days without water food supplies they resorted to eating grass eating shrubs drinking saline water kids died of dysentery this case this gentleman shakko sen who's a lawyer he represented them took their case to court the court ordered no this can't happen this is illegal this kind of economic blockade on this bunch of refugees is illegal you can't do this so the blockade was lifted by that time lots of people had died especially children this was january 1979 between january 1979 and may 1979 what happened was unimaginable massacre police was let on the island women were raped kids were killed thrown into the river men were shot at point blank range and there were pressure was put on them to leave the island to go back to the undercurrent the bengali press reported it sporadically but the report stopped people say and i have spoken to senior journalists that there was pressure from the left front government on the media owners to stop reporting on morichappi though it you know you have to realize it's 1979 there was no social media media also was very limited but it still baffles me how something that was so close to kolkata could go on like this for a period of so many months without civil society rising in anger it baffles me but it so happened that the massacres continued finally in may 
In the middle of the night, policemen swooped into the island and they torched around 6,000 huts. And the next morning, people died in the fire. Next morning, the remaining, remaining refugees were packed into police launches, taken, in, taken to mainland and from there, they were packed off to the Andakaranda. Few of the refugees escaped. They escaped not only on that night, they had sort of left the island before also when the atrocities started. And they hid from the police and made home in various parts of West Bengal. What I did was, what this book is about is tracking those refugees and listening to those voices. It is, it is very difficult to recollect an incident that happened so many years ago, exactly 40 years ago. And to pinpoint exactly how many people were killed or what happened. I thought when I approached the subject that the best way to do it is to go to those on whom such atrocities were done, to go to the people themselves. And my travel took me to Sundarbans, to various places of Bengal, to Madhya Pradesh, because it was part of Dandakaran Development Authority once, to Chhattisgarh, outside Raipur airport, there's, a, there's an area, it's still called Mana Camp. Mana camp was one of the most important camps of Dandakaranna. And if you go to Mana camp, it's a, it's, a, it's a fairly large area. If you go to Mana camp, you will still find that almost all the inhabitants of Mana camp are Bengali refugees. And many of them, if you talk to them, had made the trek from Dandak, from Bengal to Dandakaran, from Dandakaran back to Bengal to Sundarbans and forced back. And some of them still remember. It's a, it's a memory too too tragic for them to recollect. But my travels had taken me to Raipur and I have spoken to them and have penned this book. Now how do I was five years old at that time. How do I how did I come to this uh, come to this book? Why am I re recollecting the story of Morijhapi? I am recollecting the story of Morijhapi because Morijhapi is funnily enough my earliest memory. My father who was a university professor he happened to be a bunch of, among a bunch of poets, professors, public intellectuals who had at that time gone to the island, spoken to the refugees and offered them monetary aid. They, they could not, though they could not stop the massacre and eventually they were also stopped from going into the island anymore. He knew the story. And when the massacre was taking place, one of the refugee leaders, one of the most prominent personalities from that island, a guy called Rongolal Goldar, he escaped the police and he asked my father, requested my father if he could keep his teenage daughter in our house while he is hiding from the police and trying to find a safe place for themselves. And his daughter, Mana Goldar, his chapter in the book, came to my house and was introduced to me as a, as a you know, distant cousin. I was five years old, Mana was 15, 16. And the bedtime stories in my childhood were stories of Morichapi. I was too young to understand rape, too young to understand murder also. But there were stories of great adventure of a very determined group of women and men making that long trek from East Pakistan, which is today Bangladesh, to Bengal, being sent to transit camps in Dandakaran, spending years there, coming to Sundarbans, setting up habitation there, and being forced back. It was an amazing story and Mana used to tell me in fragments. And that was my first memory. 
when i became a journalist years later mana left mana left within a year by that time her father had found a place to stay they had built a house and when i when i started my journalism career in kolkata for as a freelance journalist for hindustan times i sort of was drawn towards what is generally known as human interest stories and i met a gentleman called jyotirmoy mondol you know jyotirmoy mondol he is another chapter in the book he is a very interesting guy he saves witches he goes to these far flung villages tribal villages and he rehabilitates women who who have become widows and who are branded witches because their in-laws or their sort of want to, or the villagers want to take away their land so he rehabilitates them he saves them and we became fast friends because he he was a source of many of my stories i travel with him and one day over a cup of chai in the afternoon jyotirmoy started talking and i asked started talking about the history of the left the, the violence of the left down the ages and i asked him that i remembered morichappi and i asked him that do you remember do you know something called morichappi massacre and his his face turned white and after a while he told me that i was in morichappi i am a survivor that was my the second instance where my father really did not speak to me till now about morichappi but mana and then jyotirmoy mondol and then it interested me to sort of examine the subject more i was in bhopal for the past two and a half years i was editing a newspaper i had decided on the book by then and i was doing my research as trying to find out where i will find more survivors and whether sort of i can put together a book which is a survivor account on the incident and i was discussing the book one day and one of the most one of the brightest reporters in my team suddenly said uh, sir i know this story so i said how do you know this story you were not even born then and uh, her name is mukapati punima i said you know you're not a, not even a bengali how how are you related to morichappi and she said well my father is from andhra pradesh but my mother is a bengali and my mother is a bengali refugee and my mother was in morichappi and i asked her that if i can meet her mother and i and she accepted and i met that met that person and uh, she told me that you should not just speak to me but you should travel 5 kilometers out of bhopal and you will find that there are 36 bengali villages 5 not 5 kilometers 5 hours out of bhopal there are around 36 bengali villages where the population most of the population remember morichappi so i met that trek and i went there and you know there are there are the normal villages and there are uh, signboards in bengali in hindi sometimes in english and it's fascinating to see so many bengali villages in in madhya pradesh and i spent a day and a half there and people just came up to me to talk about morichappi and grown men you know men who are today there's the i i saw a political leader the local political leader very tough guy he's like a political toughy and while talking he broke down he said i had gone to wash my face in the river and i saw three dead babies floating in the river he said i don't why are you here i mean you should not make me remember those days and i said you know i have to write this book and i am also invested in the story it's also in a sense my story because i heard it when i was only 5 and he invited me to his house and we spent uh, spent hours just talking about the massacre that happened 
so my endeavor in this book you know there, there, there there's this person called gatri chakravarti spivak she's a uh, she wrote a seminal essay called can the subaltern speak her point was that the subaltern the downtrodden they don't speak it's only people like you and me who appropriate their voices who speak for them you know like the intolerance letter we are speaking for people her point is that they are not allowed to speak i my endeavor in the book was to turn it into an oral history to make those people remember murid chapi not to as and and to record and write as honestly as thoroughly i can possibly can what they are telling me and not to interpret it if you read the book you will find you will perhaps find some inconsistent in inconsistent in, uh find some details that are not really adding up because people are remembering it's remembered history people are remembering so one person is remembering it a little differently from the other person in the next chapter but i did not want to change that i didn't want to edit it out i thought let them speak there's an introduction to the book where i said that you know i have not the only way to make sense of the massacre is to make is to make the survive survivors of the massacre come together and to say what they have to say and that has been the endeavor and that's the book 85 year old narayan banerji stays by a ditch with his 72 year old wife ashalata bishwas had less letters to their mud hut vishwas is another person who accompanied me in my travel where their grandchildren now jostle for space he and his wife were amongst those who had made the long journey from mana camp to morichapi they never left i had typhoid and so i had come to kumir mari for treatment when they evicted my morichapi neighbors asha and i were right below their noses but they had no clue but he must have known what happened in those last few days the rickety journeyman gasps for air, for air with his mouth wide open scared i hold his arm apni thik achen are you okay baba do not make me go back to the past it is too painful too painful banerji reminds me of the futility of my search for answers to morichapi the why's and the hows and the whens are like fresh bullet wounds to the already dispossessed 40 years have passed since the island was cleansed what good could possibly come of my shuffling through the dog-eared pages of their collective memory yet it remains one of the only ways left to document the ambitious journey of a band of women and men who dared to look the state in the eye and paid a very heavy price for it as nations grapple with refugee crisis morichapi should be retrieved from the dustbin of history i i want to touch briefly on the why's you know why did the left do what it did what was the need for this kind of massacre why were women raped and kids thrown into the river you know it's it after having spent almost 5 years on this book i still do not have the answer morichapi has funnily while it has not been mainstreamed you know it has been spoken about written about in uh in university papers in oxford and cambridge and a very interesting paper by anu jalias uh shim and uh, ross malik they have said that you know it's because of the inherent caste bias of the left hand government it's a funny thing to say caste bias of the left hand government because the left always talks of a casteless classless society but their argument is that while they speak these things the most of the leaders of the political left were upper caste 
and they get to fix about lower caste Hindus who defied them and settled in an island. So they argue that it's about a caste bias. Uh, I am not completely convinced after the book. I think it's it's a little more. You see, the left front government that came to power in West Bengal, it's a left front government. It's not just a CPM government. There are other left constituents. One of the constituents was a party called RSP, Revolutionary Socialist Party. Now, this Sundarbans area was under the control of the RSP. So, it's like a coalition government, only of left parties. Now, these refugee, refugees who settled in Morichapi started hating Jyoti Basu and the CPM because they had gone back on their word. But they were somewhat close to a gentleman, uh, the gentleman from the Revolutionary Socialist Party who were operating in that religion and who were also reportedly somewhat sympathetic to them. Now the CPM thought that you know these are just 1.5 lakh refugees, there are many more refugees. Suppose they start coming in mass into Bengal and start settling in Sundarban and other areas of Bengal. And when the election comes next time, they vote not for CPM but RSP, the balance within the left front will become a problem. The chances that RSP, which is a junior member, you know, in the left front, in the left front will perhaps become a senior member. Imagine it's like a BJP and Shiv Sena in Maharashtra. Right. So it's the compulsion of coalition politics. Uh, Deep, how do you view uh, how do you view this event in, in let's say the present day scenario when we talk so much about the atrocities on Dalits from the upper caste, basically the Dalits and Muslims, especially since uh, the, the BJP came to power in 2014. Yeah. Uh, every day or the other, we hear about some caste based violence and the leftist intellectuals, especially blaming the, the center, central government that it's an upper caste Brahminical party. But such an event being forgotten, how do you view this? In the present day context when everyone is see every leftist especially seems to be bothered about lower caste but not even mentioning this and see, no one taking you know the blame that okay it was a leftist government which which led this uh, let this happen see there's a narrative i mean it's a political question so the answer has i think has to veer towards politics but i think it's a narrative that they have set that they speak for the voiceless they speak for the powerless they speak for the downtrodden the dalits and the muslims marijapi stands as as a as a mirror to that lie yeah you know so uh, of course these are i mean like i said any lynching any instance any instance of lynching any killing should be condemned uh, letters should be sent to the prime minister why not i mean he's answerable letters should be sent not not just by eminent citizens but by any citizens you know and even for one killing which which should not happen but it's also perhaps important to see who's sending the letter. I mean, when you have, when you were in power, done something so horrific and done everything in your power to hide that, right? I mean, when, when, when you talk about killing, it's a little funny. It's funny. I mean, it's hugely hypocritical. So, yes, I mean, those concerns remain. I mean, uh, if there are instances of violence, the state needs to take care that such things don't happen. But the guys who are raising questions, they also need to look at themselves right. more thoroughly. Yeah, so uh, my question was that uh, yeah, since like when you were doing R&D for your book, yeah. 
like we all know that the marichapi incident was uh, the massacre was uh, they, they had to cover it up right yeah so there must be some sort of trail in the government machinery and also the uh, like the police and all yeah so did you approach I, them i spoke to the police uh, the, the the sp superintendent okay. of police at that time tried to speak to him he didn't speak to me he, do, he does not people have tried to speak to him over the years omiyo okay. shamanto he doesn't speak to people he has written a piece for i think the telegraph where he where he says that such thing didn't happen it's a lie it's an elaborate lie i happened something i didn't mention in the book i happened to meet his son uh, through a common friend not for the book generally it so happened that i met his son who was in delhi at that time and uh, when i got to know that he is that man's son despite being a journalist i thought that i will not speak to him because it was not the intention but the common friend who ma- uh, who made us uh, meet Uh, said that i'm writing this book and he go, he went very quiet and uh, when the meeting ended he just looked at me and he said i'm sorry and he left so i don't know what he was sorry for i mean maybe he was sorry for his father but yes i spoke to a gentleman called kanti ganguli who was a minister in the in the jyotibasu government he that's also a chapter who was the only leftist leader at that time who wanted to speak who allowed me to speak and you can read i mean he's he's denied most of it he also says less than 10 people died and he said that how can you even think that we would do this to lower caste uh, refugees you know lower we don't believe in caste i just want to know uh, this is a very fantastic topic you have taken up but while you were doing your research and speaking to people yeah. did you actually get into the archival documented records of the government at any place that you can find to sort of authenticate and sort of to come to a more concrete conclusion yeah. as to what was the numbers and who gave the orders for the police yes. who gave the orders to yes. have that barricade so the, yeah. all that yeah yeah there were two and four letters i have gone through that those have been documented also in bengali bengali books this is not the first book on morichappi this is the first uh time it has been mainstream because those books have gone out of publication for some reason so uh those letters have been published and uh though like i said it was so far away uh that uh, i think the bengali press at that time was forced to and also lost interest you know to record it sorry they were forced they were forced yes sort of yes but there's one gentleman who i spoke to no there were no there were no written there were no written orders no there's no archival history there are no written orders i'll tell you something horrific uh, this since it's recorded history and i have also delete uh, not mentioned that when they wanted to when they were getting impatient that this island has to be now freed of refugees we can't let this people stay they thought that somebody told uh, somebody in the government that you know you should let off let out muslim gangs quote unquote because they will uh, because they hate these people and they will unleash atrocities on hindu refugees to an extent that the, even the police can't so apparently it's not just the police who go, went in to massacre it was also the muslim gangs so i i i heard it from one survivor i decided to sort of you know uh, keep that bit out but uh, there is no there is no order it was an unofficial order it was a decision that was taken somebody somebody said that you know don't just let in the police let sort of muslim gangs also go into the island and let them do what they want to do because the, even perhaps even the police would stop somewhere but these people won't so hardened criminals were let out to go into the island and torture these refugees to force them to get out said about uh, you know 
you sort of let loose muslims on those people so yes. that they will kill them yes. so i think we need to modify what marx had said about religion opiate yes. of the masses yes. it should be called the opiate of the politicians now yes yes you should mention this in your book somewhere <laughs> yes Uh, congratulations on your book. Thank uh, you. Uh, uh, there are many few books written on the plight of uh, East Bengali refugees. Yes. One is written by uh, Doctor, uh, sorry, Tathagat Rai. Yes. Right. I believe that your book, what does it? It exposes the hypocrisy of the left. Yes. You know, they have the time to uh, take out rallies for what is happening in Palestine. Yes. But they do not have the time to look across the border what is happening there. Yes. Right. So my question is. uh jyoti basu who is the longest serving chief minister of west bengal i guess 34 years his family hails from a place called narayan ganj in east bengal yes that's true right yeah so why can why couldn't he understand the pain of those people and the second question is yeah like uh, the plight of uh, Tam- uh, sri lankan tamils is a very big political issue in tamil nadu and uh, it is uh, you know carried on on by dmk yeah. why couldn't that happen in uh, west bengal why people have forgot everything so i believe so the second question answer to the second question first uh the people who were meant to speak up for these refugees were the ones who did this massacre so it was the left who spoke up for these refugees when the congress government when these guys were coming in the congress government decided to send them to dandakaran it's the left that stood up and said no they're bengali refugees they speak the bengali language they understand the land the rivers they should be rehabilitated here so they were the they were the voice of the refugees so, so it's 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 betrayed from one of your own they stood up for the refugees and it is they who massacred them so actually my question is twofold so would you like to tell me like when they were sent to dandakaran like just after the partition was it no 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 partition like i said part in uh, during the partition from east pakistan uh, which uh, later became bangladesh the first group of refugees who came hindu refugees who came this side to west bengal were the upper caste hindus the lower caste hindus decided to stay back you know because they were very attached to the land they were tillers or they were fishermen and they thought that they are the victims of uh, what do i say uh, the victims of caste and in in that they were similar to the muslims who because of their religion were also kept as kept apart kept aside by the upper castes upper caste hindus so they thought these are brothers i mean we have both suffered so in this new land we will be together we will nothing will happen but that but when the, when india became free and you know east pakistan sort of became another country uh that that was not their their uh, that that was not what happened what happened was they started viewing them as hindus not as uh, you know sort of subalterns who were together mm-hmm. once in their struggle so the riots continued so 50 60s right to the 70s okay. migration waves came and these migration waves were mostly of Uh, lower caste hindus so, so uh, the uh, uh, the statement of the left that these are bengalis so you shouldn't shift them to madhya pradesh or somewhere so that came in the 60s maybe yes that okay. came that came uh, in the 50s also i mean when okay. they were coming in and this were, it was decided to shift them to tandakaran the left leader stood up and they said that okay. they, they held not, not just stood up they sort of held uh, sabhas you know where they said no this can't happen we we have to sort of yeah, that was a vote bank In fact, the Bangladesh creation was on a period of the immigrants who came yeah. from uh, Bangladesh. 85% were Hindus. Yes. Yet it is always hidden as as a fact that it was not exactly a Hindu massacre. It's a forgotten Hindu massacre. But that was 
what actually led to it's like mentioned in the, this book the blood the blood telegram yes. so the majority were hindus we call it bengalis and pakistan uh, wreaked havoc on bengalis but yes. in reality they were bengali hindus and it is believed 80 to 85 percent were hindus yes those who were in favor of sheikh mujibur yes. rahman yes. asking for a separate state for bengalis and yes. which eventually led to you know indira gandhi giving the orders for the fight and which yes. led to again it's not portrayed in that manner we yes. all know that you know okay bangladesh was created there was a war but the reality is that which is again you know hidden from the the masses because you know, interestingly mohammad salim was a very prominent left leader cpm leader he wrote on twitter after my book came out that every uh, this is a, this is propaganda but he also mentioned it's very funny in one sentence he said morijhapi massacre is a propaganda now if it's a massacre it can be a propaganda you can I mean, either it's a massacre or it's a propaganda but he said morijhapi massacre is a propaganda it's very interesting also uh, some of the facebook comments uh, when i wrote about the book or sort of uh, put out pictures of sort of the launch and etc this gentleman uh, leftist historian who said that you know why are you saying it's a hindu massacre So I asked him, "Is are Dalits not Hindus?" To which he had no answer. So, yeah, it's very interesting. So, he said that it's not a Hindu massacre; it's a Dalit massacre. So I asked him that he had no answer, though. As a supplementary yes. to the gentleman who asked about uh, the sympathy of people Jyoti from Tamil yes. Nadu yeah. Yeah. and yeah. to the people, and uh, it's more of more. Of, I'm talking more about uh, Bengali ethos. There is still a lot of. Uh, affection sentiments for the people who have gone out of tamil nadu probably 100 years back 150 years back how is it that uh, the bengalis who are so very uh, i mean uh, staunchly in connection with their language and their culture how is it that they are not projecting the problems of uh, refugees in Beng- of people in bengal in bangladesh yeah i will yeah please ma'am I will I will quote Mr Vivek Debroy who I believe is going to address uh, this gathering today later on uh, in in the first talk on on blood island uh, he said that this is a this is a shame of for not just the left front but the entire bengali community because it's not as if bengalis were not sympathetic to refugees you know though there were there was a division but the ghotis and the bangals in bengal we call them the bangals were those who came from the other side uh, who came as refugees but like i said the first wave of migration that happened were the upper caste refugees and they settled in and around kolkata you know the entire history of south kolkata if you leave if you if you, if you even uh, go to kolkata today i mean talk to them most of them are are refugees were refugees their parents were or grandparents were i stay in a in a place in south kolkata where sort of, and we had sort of there was hardship but not such hardship and we were accepted and we could set shop but it's 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 a it's a shame for bengalis is and it again reinforces the 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 theory i don't fully completely buy which is that this happened because they were only because they were lower caste so it is not about not feeling empathetic towards bengali refugees or bengalis from the other side it's also about the fact that they were dalits they were not people like us you know they were sort of uh, they were uneducated uh, they were tillers of lands they were fishermen so you could perhaps not uh, care for them the way you cared for the bhadra lok so it's like a it's a, it's a shame for bengalis this blindsiding 
of Bangladeshi Hindus and the problem they are facing today. And the fact is that they are still trying to migrate to India. Yes. And how is it still not being uh, looked at with that passion which a normal Bengali should look at? Well, migration is, as we speak, I think migration is happening because <laughs> parts of the border, Bengal's border with Bangladesh is porous. So, I mean, if you if you examine Bengal politics closely, CPM's politics and Trinomul's, I mean, you'll see that a lot of people who are, are still coming in. But uh, I think, uh, sadly, it's more vote bank politics. It's not really wel- so welcoming for Hindus. So, I think uh, a lot of people are allowed to come in with an idea to convert them into vote banks. So, uh, so, sympathy lies somewhere else because of political reasons. Uh, adding to that, uh, yeah. you know, uh, during 1947, when the partition happened, there was a person by the name of Jogindranath Mandir. Yes, yes. Right. Yes. He and he told that those Dalits uh, or they are also called as Namashudras. Namashudras. Yes. They he told he assured he also also uh, among them he assured them that you know if you stay with Pakistan I will protect your interests. Yes. Right. Yes. But that did not actually happen. That didn't happen. And when you say yes, I agree to the fact uh, up to 1960s those people who were you know intelligent enough they understood the situation and they came here. Yes. Right. But when Bangladesh was formed in 1971 and after Mujib's death, yes. when uh, Ziaur Rahman and the BNP came, the situation became uh, unbearable. Yes. That wave of uh, Bangladeshi nationalism you know, swept and uh, for them it was living there was not possible. Yes. Sir, I have a question. Yes. It's, uh, so the issue that you are talking about is a kind of pro-right. But no, it's not pro-right. It's just pro-humanity. It's not yes, pro-right it at all. It's it a, it's is pro-humanity, a, but uh, it's a it's a it's massacre. It's not left-right. It I can't sort of uh, I can't uh, not talk against the left because they kill people. So I have to talk against the left. But it's not pro-right. Yeah, I mean, uh, the left would not like this issue to be highlighted. Up. Yes. Yes. So I have a perception that uh, India Today group is kind of pro-left. Pro-left. Yes. I no. I don't think that's true. And because of uh, how Rahul Kamal frames his questions. No, I mean, this, this has nothing to do with India today. So, please, so my India question today questions out. I, when I start, when I, uh, incidentally, when I started writing the book, there was a, there was a UPA government. Mm-hmm. When I finished, it took me five years to write the book. When I, when I uh, completed the book, Mr. Modi was in power. I was not in India today when it, the book started. So, I mean, those things have nothing to do with the book. It's just, a, I know the story. Because, you know, I, I'm invested in the story. I heard the story as a five-year-old. My father had tried to help, do his best to help the refugees. I know uh, through the, down the years, I've met many people who sort of, who are linked to the story. That's, that's why the, that's why there's a book. It's not a pro-right book. There's no pro-right, pro-left in a massacre. It's a massacre. Somebody said that, uh, one very prominent publisher said that, can you tone down the anti-left rhetoric? So I asked the publisher, how can that happen? Because it's the left front government that killed these people. So how can I tone it down possibly? So I changed my publisher. So, <laughs> so yeah. But yes, on social media, a lot of people do say that it's... I mean, Thank you so much for introducing this subject, which is uh, known to my generation, like who is born after emergency. Yeah. So uh, my thing is this, uh, that uh, to describe history, you must use uh, the terminology or terms which are known in the, you know, like normal way. Yeah. But the narrative is set by terms only, like right and left. Yes. And majority and minority and Muslims and Hindus. Yes. 
but uh, the truth remains that on a universal scale since history you know like uh, anybody who has been destroyed is always weak yeah or the person who can be oppressed yes it can be majority also yes it can be left also it can be christians also there can be good people in everywhere yeah who are working you know like backward and forward yeah so uh, like ambedkar and uh, this bhim and meme yeah ambedkar was made chairman and the constitution was passed with the provisions for backwards when majority were forward people yeah so uh, don't you think that uh, to fight the narrative we must have you know like strong or weak or rich or poor which are only two things because inside a family also in hindus we always have this uh, pariha attitude towards a brother mm-hmm. who is not so well learning and <laughs> you know what i think the uh, one of the good things now a lot of bad things one of the good things now is everybody's got a voice you know so the more people speak the more different kinds of people speak i think the narratives would get corrected previously only the powerful spoke now a lot of people can speak anybody can have a facebook account anybody can be on twitter anybody can send something on whatsapp there are there are problems there but it is also a hugely democratic force you can't shut people out anymore misinformation spreads yes but also you can't you can't today perhaps have an incident like mori chapel at that time the press could be forced to shut up at that time the few books that came out could be taken off the shelves at that time there was no social media there was no tv right tv was there doordarshan but it was sort of <laughs> not tv as we know it in india today <laughs> but yes there was no tv uh, no tv in the way we know it but uh, now it's not possible so what you are asking that uh, now i think it's easier to correct a narrative if somebody is saying something you know there can be a counter view which can be easily put forth